Well, happy 2021. Uh, glad you're with us this morning. And as you just saw in the video, uh, we're encouraging you as you start the year. Maybe you've already put together a list of goals or New Year's resolutions or whatever that looks like. But to make sure that you're considering that um, in light of, one, who God is, which we'll spend our time looking at in Isaiah 40 this morning. But two, also just where you are in your own life. And so this is a safe, non-threatening way to sit down with someone uh, who's trained to ask questions um, and to help you uh, set some things uh, straight and to set some things forward in your own life. And so our staff does this, our, our elders go through this, deacons go through this uh, with those who are trained to do it. So I just encourage you uh, to get online and to check out one of these. Um, you can think about it like a, going to a financial counselor, right? Or going to a nutritionist or someone who's just going to coach you through uh, in a one-hour session uh, what that looks like. And then if you're looking for ongoing training as well, uh, we have several members of our church who have been through the two-year training process uh, to become spiritual directors who can help you for more an extended period of time to help chart out a plan or a path for your spiritual life and your life with God and what that looks like. So I encourage you to find out about those things um, online. As we mentioned, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. Um, and Isaiah 40 is a passage of scripture that is uh, significant in the Bible, but also has played a part in American culture as well. In many ways, um, when presidents are inaugurated and they take their oath of office, one of the practices um, has been that they take a Bible and they place their hand on top of the Bible. And many presidents uh, have chosen not to place their hand on top, but to open it up to a passage of Scripture. And five different presidents have chosen to pick Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And uh, one president, George W. Bush, actually picked Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 31 here at the end. Um, to start that off. It, it's something that shows up regularly. President Obama used this um, in one of the national prayer breakfast meetings. Um, when MLK was giving the speech, uh, Dr. King says, I have a dream. He goes off script. And when he goes off, off the script that he had written, he goes to his mind, his heart goes to Isaiah chapter 40 to set a vision for what he hopes the world uh, will look like. If you listen to Handel's Messiah, the, the lyrics to Handel's Messiah begin with Isaiah chapter 40. It shows up in all sorts of different places. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, each one of them are quoting something from Isaiah 40 as they're trying to explain what God, who God is and what he's doing uh, in the world and how the good news is breaking into uh, this world. So this is a very significant passage of Scripture. And because of that, it could be f very familiar to you. And so it may be easy for you as something familiar uh, to, to kind of lose track of it. So I'm going to ask you to concentrate extra hard as we start the year. And another thing against you this morning is that Isaiah 40 is filled with poetic language. And so because there's poetry there, for those of us who don't read poetry, specifically ancient Near Eastern poetry regularly, it can be easy to kind of, you know, the, what's, the, what's the image? Why is it repeating? Why is it saying that again? Um, so just as a heads up, before we read from Isaiah 41, to give you a, a little sense of what that is. And then finally, one quick reminder, he's, Isaiah's writing this to a people who have lost their normal life. And so they've been greatly disrupted. They're no longer thinking about their life in the same way. They're, they're not even in the same place anymore. They've been displaced from where they are. And all the normal routines, the things that they're used to doing, are not there. They don't get to go to the temple to worship, right, in the same way. The, the local synagogue uh, is not there uh, for their normal prayers or practices uh, that would be happening. And so he is writing a letter to this people that, have, uh, that God is using a foreign enemy or an army uh, to help refine them and to correct them and to move them forward. So as we read the passage, I want you to keep those things in mind. I'm going to read all the way from verse 12 through the end of the chapter here. It's a longer portion of text, um, but I think it's really helpful as we start the new year just to, to orient our lives and our mind and get a perspective on who uh, God is. So Isaiah chapter 40, beginning of verse 12, it'll also be on the screen uh, for you. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills on a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him or taught him the way that is right? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon, so Lebanon's known for these big trees, right? Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires or nor its animals for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So verse 18, with whom then will you compare God? To whom will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal, ca- a metal worker cast it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions the silver chains on it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, and they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple, right, not fall over. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, nothing. He reduces rulers of this world to nothing. Nor sooner are they planted, nor sooner are they sown, nor sooner do they take root in the ground and he blows on them and they wither like a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. So verse 25 again, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Who created all this? He who brings out the starry host one by one, he calls forth each of them by name. And because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So verse 27, this is the complaint. This is really where the passage pivots. So why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting. The creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the, of the weak. Even though youth grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall. Those who hope or wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. Please pray with me for just a moment. Father, as you breathed out these words through the prophet Isaiah, we uh, pray that you would breathe into our hearts today um, so that we might have uh, knowledge and understanding to see you for who you are, uh, that you might grow our hearts full of love, uh, that we can love and serve others, and that you might uh, take us to a place where we're willing to obey you and follow you, uh, whatever you ask us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage of scripture is using a device called rhetorical. It's asking lots of different questions to try to get his point across to the people. There's 14 different questions in the passage. We're going to look at four of them. Um, I often uh, say this phrase that the quality of your life will largely be determined by the quality of the questions that you ask, right? So the quality of your life will largely be determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. And there's four questions I want you to ask, I think are just embedded right here in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. And they're pretty simple. Number one, is God big enough is the question they're asking. Number two is, is God strong enough? The third question um, is, is, why do we act like he's not big enough, strong enough, right? And then finally, in verse 27 there, they're asking, does God see me? Does he see me? And we're going to see how all four of these questions are driving towards something at the end so that God will respond uh, to his people with these questions. So number one is, is God big enough? 
Um, Two weeks ago, Anson was looking at Isaiah chapter 40, and he talked about the first 11 verses, and it shows how this king is coming. And so we're getting to the point now where we're saying, well, what kind of king is this? Uh, Israel, again, has been moved. They've been uh, moved in exile to, depending on which time you're placing this, Assyria or Babylon, one of these. They're now in a foreign place, and there's a different storyline. There's different news coverage that's happening. They're not just talking about Israel's God, Yahweh, anymore. They're talking about Babylon's gods, plural, or the Assyrian gods. So Marduk is as big of a name that's happening, and they're beginning to talk about their God versus their God, like who is whose, and which one is bigger, and which one is stronger as a result of uh, the exile that has happened uh, to Israel. So people are asking these different questions. And they may be asking a question like this, was God just our God while we were in Jerusalem? right? Does, does God have parameters around him? Is he confined to a space? Is there a jurisdiction in which Yahweh is the king, but if you move to another place, now we need to operate under somebody else's rules, and should we live by the way of life that another king or another god or set of gods is asking? And Israel might be asking a, a question like this, and so Isaiah comes and he says, let me remind you how big God is. And the first thing he says in verse 12 is he says that what? He takes the waters and he measures them in the hollow of his hand, okay? Instead of trying to do an ancient Near Eastern geography lesson and let's look at the waters there, let's just think about waters near us. How about Lake Michigan? Uh, My family and I had a chance to go visit some friends, uh, some former neighbors. They moved to Traverse City, and so we drove around Lake Michigan, right? We went through Gary. We stopped in uh, St. Joe's. We stopped in Holland for a little bit. We went up to Traverse City, and we kept going past a little bit to Petoskey, as a southerner, Petaskey, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it the right way, but we kept going north to Mackinac Island. We didn't do it, but you can go up to the UP and you can turn around. There's 1,600 miles of shore around Lake Michigan, right? 100 miles across, 300 miles north and south. The average depth of Lake Michigan is about 290-something feet on average. That means there are a quadrillion gallons of water inside of that lake. It's not even the biggest of the five lakes. But there are quadrillion gallons of water inside Lake Michigan. Uh, that number's, you know, certainly hard to get your mind around. So how about this? If you want to lower it an inch, if you want to lower the lake one inch, you have to empty 400 billion gallons of water out of it. Isaiah says, God holds out his hand and Lake Michigan is not spilling out the edges of it. And he picks up his other hand and Lake Superior is in there. And he's looking at these things. He is vast. He is massive. God has created a world in which he can hold elements in it, and he wants you to see that he is so much bigger than anything that you can possibly think. God is a God who is unthinkably big. And then in the next verse, he says what? He picks up his thumb and his finger, and he can hold the whole sky between the two of them, right? He can pick up, verse 12, he continues, what about the mountains? He sticks one on the scale, Rocky Mountains over here. Let me pick up the Appalachian Mountains. Boom, let's put them here. Let's see which one is bigger. I can do these things because I am God. There, there's, there's nothing that is big for me. I'm not stuck in Jerusalem. I'm not stuck in a, confined to a place. I am massive. And Isaiah is saying, don't forget, you guys know this. You went to temple, you learned this. You sang songs about how big God is. Don't forget, just because your circumstances have changed, just because you're in a new place, don't forget the character of who God is. Now, the reason that he would be doing this and trying to remind them of this, and when he moves and says, and, and by the way, who taught God how to do that? Like, who is the one who gave him the powers to stick his hand out? 
He says, no one did that. He doesn't have a degree on his wall. He doesn't brag. God doesn't brag about going to a certain school and studying under a certain professor. There's no one who was his consultant. He didn't hire anyone out to learn those things. Are you kidding me? But these Babylonian gods, right, for example, Marduk had to go to the god of wisdom when he created the world in, their, in the Babylonian myth to start the world. When they explain it, they say that god A went to god B to borrow powers or to borrow wisdom from them so that they could create this. And then they went to another god to ask uh, to not just make humans, but to make things inside of the world, right? And Isaiah is saying, no, 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 no. That is not how this thing works. You need to know there is one God, and this God is uh, massive, and he holds the waters in his hands. He stretches out the skies between his fingers. There, there's not an analogy you can come up with that really gets your mind around how big God is. Is he big enough for your circumstances? Absolutely. And what about the second one? Is he strong enough? Does he have the power or the strength, right? Because there was an army, there was, a, there, was a, um, there was value in Israel being his kingdom, and they were protected and they were safe, but now they've been exiled. They have been taken over. Now they're living a new way of life inside of a stronger, more superior army. So is it possible that the Assyrian God is stronger than the Israelite God, right? Is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually not as strong as these new nations? And Isaiah says, let's tackle that one, right? Is God strong enough? Absolutely. And so he, this is part of a divine speech where he's trying to, he's trying to correct the misthinking or the problematic thinking that Israel might have had at the time. So he says, do you not know, have you not heard in verse 21, right? Again, you went to Sunday school, <laughs> right? You, you, went, you went and learned this when you were a kid. You know that the nations don't match up to him. So Isaiah says, he picks the most powerful thing you can think of, the most powerful animated reality in the world, right? Which would be a nation, a nation state. Um, and he says, what? What is the GDP of China, right? $14 trillion, right? How big is the American military? It is massive. You can't get your mind around how big it is. And when you take those and you weigh them on a scale, they don't even register. The numbers don't even change. It's like dust. You can blow them off. These nations don't weigh anything if you're going to compare them to who God is. Assyria is not bigger than God. Babylon is not bigger than God is what Isaiah is saying. Come up with whatever the greatest thing is in your mind. And he says they don't even show up on the scale. It's like a drop spilling off the side of a bucket, right? It's so insignificant. You'd never stop to look at the drop. You just keep going with the bucket. Because God is massive. He is all powerful. There is nothing that compares to him, Isaiah says. Don't forget that. When you write your New Year's resolutions this year, don't do it thinking that you have a small God. Don't do it thinking you have a God uh, who is not powerful enough to act inside of the world. If you're like me, sometimes this can get challenging, right? And 2020 was helpful for us, I think, in some ways. Because when I think about the world, it seems like a pretty unstoppable force, right? I mean, the globalization that's happened, the technological advances that are there, the way that we communicate, just the things that are happening in ways, they're happening so fast we can't even keep up with them, much less understand exactly how they work. And yet, all of that, like everyone's best thinking and effort, the best companies that are out there, the best governments, what happened? This little micron, this microbe that you can't even see, it's so small, this virus, like halts the whole world. Like everything shuts down. Jobs shut down, the airport shut down, travel shuts down, everyone goes in their home. It's this really small thing that says, yes, you're a great nation, you're a great world, but guess what? <laughs> you're not as powerful as you think. And Isaiah 40, I think, is saying that same thing. Is when you're not the most significant thing in the world because compare yourself to the God who created all this. 
then you'll get a proper perspective if you want to start 2021 the right way. If you want to put a resolution list together the right way, you'll do it as someone who sees where your significance is, and you'll do it as someone who says, I can't figure out God, right? I, I'm not going to actually, I'm not actually, actually get a, my mind completely around him so that he fits into my box or my bubble that's there. Uh, an early church father is trying to get at this idea of like how vast God is, how inexpressible his nature is. And he says this, Augustine says, we're speaking of God. Like, don't forget that. That's what we're, that's what we're doing. Is it any wonder if you don't comprehend him? For if you did comprehend, it is not God who you comprehend. So let it be a pious confession of ignorance, right? Understate it, rather than a rash profession of knowledge. So in other words, don't act like you understand it. Act like you don't understand it. You'll be in a much better place. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. But to comprehend him, totally impossible. And what happens when you don't understand or you, see, you realize something is much bigger than you'll ever get your mind around? Your heart actually moves to worship. Your heart actually properly places something in the right place. And you recognize your insignificance and your heart's filled with wonder and you're actually filled with worship. And the songs that we just sang have much more meaning because you see God for who he is and then you see yourself for who you are. So the third question is this. If he's big enough and if he's strong enough, why is it that Israel is constantly acting like he's not? And why is it that you might be acting the same way sometimes, right? Why is it that you might be thinking God is weak or that God is small? That's what verse 18 through 20 are trying to answer. And it starts out by saying, who are you going to compare me to, right? Um, Not just in how big it is, but why is it that you are going to try to think that something that is made by human hands with the best gold and with the best silver, right? Or if you can't afford gold and silver with the best wood and you have an artist who comes and crafts it and the idol won't fall over. How is it that you think that one of these is going to give you meaning in life? How is it that you think one of these things that was created is going to give you significance or is going to, is going to give you life, provide life for you? Why is that going to be the channel that you follow, right? That's what Isaiah is saying. How, how is it that you're going to do that? Well, the nature of sin is actually to take something that is big and vast and reduce it down to something small. And to take something that's small something created, and to make it big, and to make it what your life is all about. That's what sin does. It just inverts the reality of the world that we're living in. That's one of the ways Isaiah talks about it. And uh, pastor in Nashville says this. He says, the reason that you and I do that, the reason that Israel does that, is that we worship what we make because we worship what we can control. We We try to worship what the things that we make because we worship things we can control. Because if we make it, if we control it, then guess what? Who gets to set the limits on what God asks us to do? We do, right? We're in charge all of a sudden. I can say God is telling me to do this, but not more than that. He's asking me to do this and not this. I'm going to live my life my way. Why? Because I'm the one who gets to draw the boundaries, not God. But Isaiah's saying, no, I don't think it works that way. If you make your own God, yes, certainly it does. But you're going to live for something that's really small. So I want you to live for the true God. And if you live for the true God, he's the one that sets the limits. He's the one that writes the rules. He's the one that drives uh, the ship and moves things forward. So we have to um, make sure that we're not looking in the wrong place to find true life, the wrong place to find true value and identity. Another way to say it is this. If you ask for it for Christmas, don't worship it, right? If it's something that could be consumed or Amazon could bring it to your house or you could find it at home goods, right? If it's there, 
Don't live your life for it. Don't look for it for identity. It can't deliver that. It can't deliver meaning and purpose in life. Things were not made to do that. So the top things that were purchased this year that maybe you could say are equivalent to gods of, of the Assyrians, right? They may have been something that people were looking to for life in their times, right? They're, they're different. They're statues. I know we don't do that anymore, but Tesla and Apple, Lululemon or Vitamix, right? These are things that are created. Xbox Five or a box of five Cabernets, whatever it is that was on your Christmas list, these are things you might be looking for to life in the 21st century. But they can't deliver that. They're good gifts, yes. But when you elevate them and when you make them big and when you live for them, your life flips around. God becomes small and God becomes weak when those things are driving your life. And Isaiah says, don't do it. Like, don't try to compare those things. But when you do that, you end up in verse 27. And 27 is the fourth question. The fourth question is this, is that when God becomes small, you ask, can he even see me where I am? Does he actually understand my circumstances? Does he see the challenges that I face? When I'm exhausted, when I'm weary, when I'm tired, does God find me in that place? Because, right, God is, I've made God small, uh, potentially is there. So it's this complaint in verse 27 uh, that Israel is offering to God, kind of accusing him of saying, you, you've forgotten me. You don't see where we are. Don't you know my circumstances, God? That's the complaint that's there. Now, let me make a quick uh, side note here. This is not the kind of complaint that is a result of grief and loss, or this is not the kind of complaint that is a result of evil that has been done to an individual, okay? So if that's you, there's actually a different category of complaints that the Bible legitimizes and says, yes, those are are right ways to experience um, the injustice that you've happened to use. Take those to God, complain about them. The Bible offers laments for us to do that with. So there's actually a guide to do that. These are when God is refining somebody, when he's correcting them and turning them back away from worshiping something false, that's what Israel is doing. And that's why they're complaining in this way. And they're saying, God, don't you see me? Don't you understand my state that's here? And what does God say? He says, let's go back to number one. <laughs> let's go back to number two. Let's remember who I am. And the way he says it, this is, I, I love this verse, verse 26 and 27. He says, he lines up the stars outside and he calls each one of them by name, right? So he goes out to the sky at night and you look up and, and it's not like God is saying, there's a star, Wait, did, did Jupiter show up? Where's Jupiter? He didn't come tonight. He's, no, he lines up. Every time God says for the stars to show up, they show up, they do their job, right? He's not looking in the sky and saying, where's, where's the one that looks like a, cup or like a saucer, right? Where are the set of, there's the Big Dipper. Now he finally showed up. No, that's not how it works. When God says that the stars will show up, they show up and they get in line and they salute every single night, night after night after night. Do you know how big uh, stars are? I'm going to tell you about two of them. We don't have time. And I'd encourage you, there's a guy's name, a pastor's name, Louis Giglio. You may have heard of him. He's friends with Pastor Mike. Um, who explains this over the course of 15, 20 minutes. We're not going to do that. I'm going to give you this condensed version who tries to give you a perspective of how small you are, how small I am, and how vast the universe is. And this is what Isaiah 20, or 40, 26 is talking about. He says this, there's, there's a star uh, that is in our galaxy that's close to us called the sun, right? And the sun is, you know how many miles away the sun is? 93 million miles away. That's even further than Petoskey if you're driving around, right? It's a long way away, Okay. And if the earth were the size of a golf ball, you could get a million of these golf balls inside of the sun. 
one of the stars. You get a million golf balls. So real quick, find yourself. You're online. Look. I don't know if you can see the golf ball. Find yourself in the golf ball. How big are you on this earth, right? If this is the earth, you can get a million of these inside of the sun, right? The one star that's inside of our universe. Do you know how many stars are in the universe? Or in our galaxy, I should say? Just our galaxy? I mean, I looked this up. I love the, I love, this is a scientific website, by the way. So I'm just reading this verbatim. This is how he explains it. Astronomers estimate that there are about 100,000 million stars. 100,000 million. It sounds like one of my kids trying to count. It's like, no, 100,000 million. That's 100 billion, right? We have another word for that. Why didn't they just use it? I don't know. There are 100 billion stars in, our, in just our galaxy, right? Let me tell you about one more of them, not the sun. There's a star, a giant star uh, called uh, Canis Majoris. It's a red supergiant star, and this thing was thought for a long time when the Hubble telescope found it, thought to be the biggest star that's ever been discovered. It is massive, like absolutely massive. To give you an idea of how big it is, you could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside of this one star, right? Seven quadrillion Earths inside of the star. So if you were to go downtown this afternoon before the Bears and Packers play, right, and you're, and you're to head down to Soldier Field, and you take golf balls and you stand on the top and you start just chunking them in there to fill up, you think you could fill up a... The stadium, you think it fill up Soldier Field with Earths in order to make as many Earths as could fit in this one star, Canis Majoris? Actually, you could go the entire state of Illinois, eight and a half feet deep, full of Earths, and then you would have enough size to get Earths inside of just this one star, right? What is Isaiah telling them? <laughs> does God see me? Not only does God see you, God is massive. And he knows every single star by name. And Jesus is reflecting on this in Matthew 10. And what does he say? He knows every star by name and he sees every little bird that falls to the ground. And when I send you out into this world, guess what? You're going to have trouble that's going to come after you, but God sees every place you're going and he sees you and he knows how many hairs are on your head. He has intimate knowledge about everything that's happening inside of your life. He sees you and God is coming to you and he's going to demonstrate to you that he cares about you and then he loves you. So how does he do that? How is, how is it that God is going to make sure that you remember that you're seen and that you're known and that you're cared for and that you're loved? He sends his son to make sure you know that. And his son has a complaint similar to Israel. He doesn't say, you disregarded my estate, but he says what? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is on the cross. He's giving his life away. This one who's full of strength, who has spoken the world into being, is losing every ounce of strength that he has so that Isaiah chapter 40, the end, can come true for you. So that you can experience that he will give strength to the weary. That he will meet those that are tired and exhausted. Those that have stumbled, that can't walk anymore, that can't run anymore, that certainly can't soar and fly like the eagles. And those who wait and trust in the Lord, not in these little gods, not in things that are made, not who find their life in something else, but who actually rest in what God has done for them in Christ, who experience the grace and the love of Jesus, who looks down on us and sees us, but doesn't treat us like we deserve. He treats us with mercy. He forgives our sins. He wipes away our transgressions, and then he breathes life into us so that we can be renewed, so that we can soar not with the strength we have, but with the wind that he provides, right? We walk when he refuels or recharges us when we've lost everything. That's what God is, those who wait on the Lord. So this year, as you start 2021, 
Our hope is that you do so in light of who God really is, the vastness that he is, that your heart would be moved to worship and wonder because you see God for who he truly is. And not just that you see him, but you realize that he sees you and that he has come to you and he's demonstrated his love for you in his son, Jesus. We're about to celebrate that and remember that in a real way, um, the life that God has provided for us through Christ by taking communion together. Uh, But before we do that, let me uh, ask you to join me, if you would, as we pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, we want to just begin to kind of skip across the surface of the great truths that are in this passage right here, uh, to see you for who you are, just to have our minds kind of blown um, and to remember how vast you are. Um, how inexhaustible nature uh, you are. God, we pray that you would, you would um, yeah, enlarge in our picture. Help us not to keep you in a box that's there so that we can control you, but help, pray that you'd break out of that box and that we would live our lives um, in light of who you are. God, if, whether that's a spiritual check-in or whether that's a class to start this year or that's just a moment now of reflection, seeing who we are and being reminded of the grace that you have extended to us in Jesus and the love that you have for us. Uh, We pray that your grace would meet us wherever we are today and would launch us into a new year, 2021, filled with hope, ready to walk, ready to run, ready to soar. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.